Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the American Journal of Managed Care's Healthcare Reform Stakeholder Summit. My name is Dr. Dennis Scanlon, and I am a professor of health policy and administration and director of the Center for Healthcare and Policy Research in the College of Health and Human Development at the Pennsylvania State University. Joining me today on the panel are Leah Binder, President and CEO of the LeapFrog Group, Dr. Austin Frocht, a health economist for the Department of Veterans Affairs and Boston University, Peggy O'Kane, President of the National Committee for Quality Assurance, and Matt Salo, Executive Director of the National Association of Medicaid Directors. Thank you again for joining us, and let's get started. So I'd like to start this morning by talking about one of the most significant and also most controversial parts of the Affordable Care Act, and that is the expansion of Medicaid. Um, Austin, maybe I'd start with you. The expansion of Medicaid has had implications across the healthcare industry. Some states have decided to expand, others haven't. Of course, there have been legal challenges. I was wondering if you might talk about uh, how it's impacted the healthcare industry thus far. Okay, so what we're seeing across states are some of the things that we might expect. So states where there isn't Medicaid expansion, uh, health insurance coverage rates are lower and they're not growing as quickly as states where there has been Medicaid expansion. And the Medicaid expansion, because it brings in a lot of federal dollars, they're, they're paying the complete load of, of a Medicaid enrollee's, a new Medicaid enrollee's uh, expense, at least for, for a few years, uh, brings in a lot of dollars into the state and into the health system in particular. So states that haven't expanded, they're not benefiting from that. So you're seeing hospitals with uh, uh, tighter margins, maybe negative margins, some closures in rural areas, and the state in general is not getting an economic boost that it would otherwise, and that has ripple effects throughout the state economy. Uh, finally, uh, we know from careful studies that Medicaid has positive impacts on financial health and well-being, and so these benefits are not accruing to states where Medicaid has not expanded. So citizens in those states, low-income citizens, are, uh, are, are not as well off, frankly. Mm -hmm. Peggy, a lot of people are concerned with expansion about making sure we get value for, for care, and I imagine that really has had impacts on the way you think about quality measurement and how you measure quality across a variety of states that have different programs. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's always a tension between the desire to be able to benchmark across states so you can see who's doing well and who's, who needs to work harder, um, and the desire to have, you know, state-specific measures. Um, I think that there's often a belief that my state is different, and our states are very diverse and so forth. So that tension's been going on for decades, and I expect it to continue, although I was pleased that in the, the recent uh, Medicaid regs that were, the, the notice that was put out by the federal government, there seems to be an understanding about the importance of benchmarking, so I think that's great. I think that there's another development with Medicaid, which is not necessarily related to the expansion, but that has very, very important ramifications, which is putting people in managed care now who are uh, uh, vulnerable populations, the mentally ill and mm -hmm. so forth. And I think we're going to talk about that more later, yeah. um, so I won't go into that now. But another opportunity is that 51% of births now are in Medicaid, and we have opportunities to improve birth outcomes, um, particularly low birth weight babies, the use of C-sections, and so forth. So I think, um, you know, otherwise I think that the measures that we have are actually pretty good for a lot of the Medicaid expansion populations. You know, the, the ones that we use for commercial, commercially insured people and the ones for the TANF people, those all work. It's the special populations where I think mm -hmm. we have the big challenge yeah. now. And we, and we will get into that. Matt, yeah. um, 
you have an interesting perspective since uh, you have a lot of constituents in, in many different states. You know, what are you hearing uh, from your constituents around the country about how Medicaid expansion is playing out? And one of the things you mentioned earlier was that a lot of the, uh, or there were a number of states where some of these changes were happening even prior to the ACA. Sure. Um, so I think there's a, a couple of things going on. Um, you know, clearly with uh, post-Supreme Court, uh, with the Medicaid expansion decision being placed squarely at the state level, we've seen a lot of states do it, but a lot of states not. Um, I represent all of them, all 56 of the state Medicaid, state and territorial Medicaid agencies. And, you know, to a, to a person, they all firmly, strongly um, support and defend the Medicaid program and what it's done for the 70 million people who rely on it today. But I think at the end of the day, the question around the expansion is not so much should we expand coverage, it's more what is the best way to go about bringing um, new insurance coverage to low-income Americans and, and tens of millions of more Americans? And that's what a lot of states are struggling with now is how to make a Medicaid expansion politically viable in a, in a state like a Florida, in a state like a Texas. Um, and as, as Peggy said, um, a lot of the things that, um, a lot of the really exciting things that are happening, whether it's quality measure related or whether it's delivery system reform or payment reform, a lot of those predate the ACA and a lot of those efforts are completely independent of the decision to expand. Um, and they really run the gamut. You've got, um, you know, delivery system reforms, whether it's uh, a man, you know, putting individuals into a managed care organization, you know, so an MCO, there's the ACO in Oregon, there's a coordinated care organization, a CCO, there's an RCO, there's lots of acronyms. But the important thing is that the thrust, the main thrust behind what all states are trying to do is better organize the delivery of care around the patient and to try to figure out ways that we can incentivize the system to get people healthy and keep them that way. So, oh, go ahead, well, I wanted to, to add to Peggy's point about maternity care being a, a very important piece of this because sometimes we get caught up in talking about Medicaid or Medicare and we forget that Medicaid does not deliver any kind of health care. Medicaid is a, a way of financing the delivery of care. And I think what's really important and where we've seen successes in states is where there's alignment between private sector purchasers and uh, Medicaid programs that are looking directly at the delivery systems, meaning the physicians, the nurses, the hospitals, where care is being delivered and and really lining up forces to improve that. Maternity care is a great example of that. In maternity care, um, one of the, I think one of the great successes has been um, early elective deliveries, which are these deliveries scheduled too early for not a medical reason. We've seen, and LeapFrog monitors early elective deliveries, and we've seen uh, uh, the rate go from 17% when we first started reporting on it in 2010 to about 4% now. And that really has been some incredible efforts, like in, in South Carolina, for instance, where you see this alignment between the interests of Medicaid and private sector purchasers. And again, that's when we're looking directly at the delivery of care. And I think that's a, a very powerful and important lesson for us as we go forward with expansion. If I might add to that, um, I just heard a few weeks ago about a maternity medical home program in North Carolina. 
Now, North Carolina is an unusual state because it has a network of public health nurses. And the brilliance of the model there is they've pulled the public health nurses into partnership with the OBs that are the maternity medical homes. They have quality measures and so forth. And they've already been able to bring their very low birth weight rate down by some noticeable percentage. I think it was around 10%. Um, so it really is about creating the right synergy with the delivery system. And the conditions on the ground in each state are, are different. And taking advantage of the natural uh, resources that you might have in the state or the natural advantages, I think, is part of the yeah. magic. So this concept of, uh, of cooperation between the private sector or employers in the public sector, Medicaid, who often sort of don't interact with each other. What are some of the kind of key ingredients, Leah, that you're seeing where this is happening across the country? Well, where there's a, a, an identifiable problem that affects a great number of Medicaid uh, beneficiaries and a great number of purchaser beneficiaries, which is why I'm uh, grabbing onto the issue of maternity care, because that's a perfect example of it. Um, uh, Medicaid pays for half of the births in the United States, and the other half is purchasers. Um, and both both sides are very concerned about situations like the rise in the C-section rates. That's something that's ubiquitous across the country. It's not uniform. There's different places where it's higher than others. We are uh, actually, LeapFrog is now measuring um, C-section rates with a, a measure from the Joint Commission, and we're finding, consistent with the national data already, but we now have it by hospital, that about uh, a third of births to so-called low-risk women uh, a third uh, of them are, are uh, probably unnecessary C-sections. So it's a very, very significant um, problem. And if we start aligning and working together on these issues, I think there can be some, some real progress. And that's regardless of the expansion. That can happen in any state. Yep. Austin? Yeah, I wanted to ask Matt a question. Um, to what extent do you think states that haven't expanded Medicaid, and it's, it's largely uh, red states, are waiting for a change in administration because they think that'll provide political cover, or they think the, the conditions will be better for them to get more favorable terms? Um, I, th I think there's a certain amount of that. I think there's basically three primary reasons why you haven't seen all states do the expansion. Uh, number one, clearly, it's political. And um, you know, you've had, um, we're seeing it mostly in state legislatures, because uh, there's lots of Republican governors. Uh, who are fully supportive of the expansion. They can even get their state senates on board. It tends to be the state house of, houses of representatives that are, uh, that are pushing back. Um, and a lot of it is political. And a lot, in a lot of it, uh, the political dynamic that's played out since the passage of the ACA, uh, or Obamacare, um, is that any seeming embrace of an optional component, even embrace of a mandatory component, um, is fraught politically and is almost a guarantee that someone's going to get challenged from the right in their next primary. So part of it is political. How do you get this done in a way that your constituents aren't going to chase you out of office with pitchforks? Uh, but we've seen, you know, in a number of uh, southwestern uh, red states, Nevada, um, Arizona, New Mexico, it can happen. We've seen it with presidential candidates, including uh, Governor Kasich in Ohio, who has very famously defended what he's doing. Um, but there, the, poli the politics of it are important. And to some extent, you can say, well, we'll just wait till the next hurdle we overcome. You can't do that forever, because at some point, you're going to have to figure out what you're going to do. 
Um, the politics are important, the finances are important, but again, I would go back to the ideology. And that's really, how do you structure a Medicaid expansion that can make sense in your state? And there have been a number of states, starting with Arkansas, continuing with Michigan, with Iowa, and most recently Indiana, that have gone kind of a different route. They've done a Medicaid expansion that doesn't look like the traditional Medicaid program. Um, you know, with Indiana, it's health savings accounts. Um, the other states did different um, versions of, 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 of different things. It's how do you create a program that meets the ideological needs of, of people who think differently about healthcare? How do you engage the consumer in a different way than Medicaid traditionally has? So lots of politics, but there's also a regulatory component to this as well. And CMS announced a proposed rule for sort of, I guess, modernizing, if you will, at least some people have referred to it that way, uh, Medicaid. Um, regulations around things like access, around enrollment, um, financing and such. Uh, thoughts of, of any of you on the panel about CMS's proposed rule for Medicaid and what uh, impact that might have? I think it's gonna, it's gonna have a huge impact um, because very, very clearly, uh, managed care is the direction that Medicaid is going. And again, it may look a little different depending on what state you're in, but in essence, all states are moving towards some kind of managed care. And I think the, the genesis or the, the impetus behind the regulations, it's a recognition from the administration that they didn't really have a very good handle on what was happening. It's like they, they looked out and they realized that the barn doors were open and horses were running in 50 different directions. And they have to be accountable for what's happening. And they realized that they weren't. And so this is an attempt to sort of close the barn door, recorral the horses, and kind of get everybody on the same page. And I think the, you know, it'll, some of the changes will come as no surprise to people who have been doing managed care for a little while. Some of the changes, um, you know, are, a lot of our members have said, well, this is kind of veering in the direction of a little bit too much one-size-fits-all federal focus, which you understand because that's easier to regulate, but the concern is, is that going to stifle innovation? Is that going to uh, create a ceiling on what can be done rather than a floor. And yet Medicaid, I mean, the, the feds are responding to criticism that they haven't been paying attention enough. And I think the success of managed care depends on a really vigorous accountability mm -hmm. agenda mm -hmm. because people are appropriately distrustful. You know, I mean, it's, it's a new way of doing things. There's, there's going to be a lot of pushback from people that are used to working only in fee-for-service and, and, you know, in a different situation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, a, it's the best way. It's like an inoculation to have serious accountability um, for the future success of these entities. Yeah, and I, I think to a certain extent, Peggy is absolutely right in that the move towards managed care must be done thoughtfully. And managed care... As, as, I've, as, I've, as, I've, as my members have said, it's a tool. It is a means to an end. It is not the end itself. And you can't simply say, oh, we're going to go do managed care and then you know, hand over a book of business to a managed care and say, here, here's a million people, here's a billion dollars, go do, do, do your best. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're going to have to do it thoughtfully. You're going to have to have aggressive oversight, monitoring, um, those things are happening at the state level. So I don't, 
you know, because uh, we, we, there have been a lot of very important lessons learned and failures mm -hmm. along the way. Mm -hmm. Again, the question will be, is this the right way to do it? And how do you balance mm -hmm. the, the need for CMS as an administrator to look out and to monitor versus the fact that the conditions on the ground in an Arizona, in a Tennessee, in a Delaware are all very, very different. So let's play that out in, in, in you know, one particular dimension, let's say the access dimension, because that's one that gets a lot of attention. Um, you do have a lot of variation in terms of the delivery system across the country. Access is one thing where people have concerns, a little bit of distrust. I mean, how does this play out in, on a topic like that? Well, as access in classic Medicaid hasn't been great because of the low rates paid to, to providers. Mm -hmm. So actually, often in managed care plans, they get paid better, and therefore there are broader networks, um, ironically, in, mm -hmm. in Medicaid. Yet there's also been some discussion about narrow networks as well as, as we sort yeah. of see this play forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, access has been a longstanding issue in Medicaid, both managed care and fee-for-service. Mm -hmm. And it's a complex issue because access for primary care is different than access for specialists. Right. Uh, home, home benefits are different. You can measure access in various ways, whether it's by miles, by waiting time, whether you uh, um, do secret shopper where you, you kind of call offices and see right. who takes what, or whether you um, uh, poll or survey beneficiaries and see what, what their uh, limitations are in getting access. So it, it's incredibly complex. In states, uh, there was an HHS um, uh, IG uh, report this year or late last year uh, that documented that access is uh, you know, it's variously measured across states. It's variously enforced. Uh, some states don't really have standards. Some states do. The standards vary. And I looked to the new regs to see what they're doing about access. And um, maybe other members of the panel can speak to this. I was a little bit, uh, I had a hard time getting a handle on it because it looked a little bit vague and, and aspirational and, and, and putting a lot back to the states saying, well, you know, you have to have a, a plan in place to, to, to have standards, to measure access, but not really uh, specifying what that, what that needs to look like. And I'm curious how this will play out. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if other folks I, I have I think some. for us, and we've just gone through a revision of our standards around access, um, we we're, we're want to be careful not to kind of jump in with both feet and prematurely uh, set up an environment that, that squashes the ability to do telemedicine, for example, and so forth. Um, we're, we actually defer to the plans that they have to have access standards for various types of, of physicians and providers. And then we, we're looking to see, are they following their own guidance? And we're also having them do special studies that we're going to then ask them for. So we're monitoring the situation much more closely because um, we've been in a period of very, very broad network access and so forth. So it's, a, it's kind of a new day for us. Um, but I think that the NAIC also um, is really trying to be cautious, trying to be responsible, and, and we're not at the end game yet, but uh, trying to make sure that um, things are okay in the short term, too. So in, in speaking of insurance and, and regulation, another thing that's received a lot of attention is the uh, medical loss ratio and the 85%. Um, any thoughts on, on that rule? Um, so I don't know. I guess I, I was good in arithmetic when I was in grade school, and the way I look at it is... Um, the more money you spend on medical services, the more money you get to keep, which seems like a perverse incentive to me. Um, so I understand that this came out of a motivation to kind of restrict profits and um, even out of a lot of public demand for such a thing. But I do worry about the, the, the unintended consequence mm -hmm. of, of the, 80, the 85%. 
Oh, there are also issues as well as what constitutes medical care, right? Especially if you think about Actually, social determinants. That's and, a huge yeah. issue, and I think that there there really is a, a need to sort through that because, especially as you're going with uh, dually eligible and vulnerable populations, often the services that they need are not medical, and mm -hmm. you don't want to go through a very expensive medical system to meet these other needs, mm -hmm. and you also don't want to say excuse me, that's not medical, so it goes on the wrong side of the ledger. Right. Well, there, that's addressed a little bit in the, in the reg, uh, talking about how coordination of, of care, for example, should be included in the so-called numerator, so it should be included as a medical service, which is interesting. I mean, I think we're going to potentially get into using this medical loss ratio as kind of a club uh, on the plans to say this is what is and isn't, and it's gonna, mm -hmm. it could get kind of ugly and I agree with you I think the um, uh, the primary problem is the elephant in the room is the perverse incentive I mean mm -hmm. it's an incentive for plans to spend too much mm -hmm. one thing I do like as well in the reg though that I think can can be helpful with that is the transparency um, uh, provisions I hope that those end up in the final rule uh, that uh, really is requiring plans to be transparent about their network who's in the network etc um, a lot more transparency of their quality uh, things like that. I think those are really going to be helpful just in, um, at least as a, a break on the marketplace if indeed um, the, uh, you know, the costs just are, are driven up and there's this odd debates about what's healthcare and what's not. Instead, we'll be looking at reality, which is this is what we're covering and, uh, and this is how you can navigate this market as a beneficiary. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that for a moment because, you know, we know transparency in the Medicare market, in the commercial market, at least academic studies would suggest there hasn't been great success in terms of that information being used by the population at large. When we talk about a Medicaid population, that's a different population in terms of literacy, uh, age, um, not to mention the fact that people are in and out of coverage and, and such. Uh, any yeah, thoughts on I, how I transparency plays out? This is, this is one of the problems is that we expect too much of consumers in terms of active shopping. And, you know, I mean, there's the Medicaid issue and the health literacy issue, but I mean, even if you're a sick person, your discretionary spending is long over, and um, you're kind of handled by the system, and you're on a conveyor belt. And so a lot of the really high-cost patients, they're really not in a position to be using this information. So there's, you know, there may be other shaming techniques that others can use and so on, and, and I believe in transparency. I just don't think we should get too... Uh, complacent thinking if you just put the that's information right. out there that solves the problem. Well, and, and the highest cost patients are those with su substance use and mental health uh, yeah. disorders mm -hmm. and you know they're really not going to be in a position to, right. to, to consume that information to make, uh, right. to make the best use of it. Well I don't know about that I mean they have families and the, often the that's families are in the position of making those kinds of decisions and I do think that people do need information to at least know in the network mm -hmm. is a good hospital or a bad one or no, a good, definitely. you know th that some people will make a decision based on that and that can have a big impact on the market, even a small number of, of, of more active consumers. What we've seen in the private sector is, although uh, traditionally consumers have not used quality information that much, even when it's well available, it's not always available, but when it is, they haven't used it as much as we perhaps would like. What has changed that, though, is the is price transparency. So now, there, now that more uh, in the private sector, more uh, people have high deductible plans, and they're they're needing to pay the whole bill out of their pocket. So they're they're very interested in the price of care, and that has brought them to the table to also look at quality because price is not 
enough information once you once you know how much it is. You want to know how much I, you get. Although I, think, I guess I'm not sure how much that's going to be relevant or helpful right. in the Medicaid population. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, right. Because their cost exposure is effectively zero. Right. Um, so, but I, I think that it does right. get back to, you know, we were sort of saying earlier about well, you know, managed care needs to be very thoughtfully done, needs to be overseen carefully. But I would make an important point here, um, which is on the potential benefit of it. Um, because managed care is, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but one of the best ways to describe it is almost by what it isn't. And what it isn't is unmanaged care. And that's been the basis of the U.S. healthcare system and Medicaid and Medicare for a very long time. Fee-for-service requires the individual, low-income, high-income, sick, whatever, to go out and to figure out, you know, what the networks are, what the, what the services are. Fee-for-service, we have this old joke, fee-for-service, FFS, really should stand for fend for self because mm -hmm. that's what we're requiring of people who are the oldest, the sickest, the frailest, co-occurring substance abuse and mental health disorders. They have to go and navigate a system and try to figure out transparency. That's not the way to do it. This is and a really crucial done, point. Yeah. Well, this is the point about really special care done right it, it really can is. serve um, to bring the services that the person needs yeah. to them. So as let's long as it's right. done in a patient-centered way. Sure, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. No, I know well, we, that's we the crux to... of it. I mean, that's a theoretical idea, but I'm not sure that uh, if you did a poll of Medicare, Medicaid beneficiaries that they would say that managed care is very managed from their point of view. So in reality, I mean, and, I think... And I think there are different models of managed care out yeah. there. And what's done for commercial populations and for the TANF population in Medicaid is quite different from what they need, those, these vulnerable populations who may be homebound, um, who are seeing many different providers. Uh, creating a system around them is the best thing you can do for them. Of course, mm -hmm. you don't want to lock them into a system that doesn't meet their needs. But this is, um, this is very different. It's a real ground game, uh, taking care of these people and partnerships with local providers and so forth. So mm -hmm. um, I think uh, the, the measurement logic is quite different. We're working on a lot of this right now. Um, and it feels really urgent. Mm -hmm. You know, just, just to add one thing on transparency, you know, even if transparent prices and quality uh, doesn't have an impact on, you know, to change, doesn't change how people get their care, what they choose doesn't, doesn't affect costs and, and outcomes. I still think it should be provided as a moral issue. I agree. Um, and not just to, not just to the enrollees, but to taxpayers. Right. Um, you know, it's a, it's a public program. We should know a, a lot more about how it's working, uh, wh what the quality is, where it's high, where it's low, and, and, uh, and, and how much it costs. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make one other point about transparency. Look at the, five, the STARVE program with, with MA plans, with Medicare Advantage plans. What, what they did was take quality measures, bundle them, make stars, not perfect, working, you know, but they also, if you're a five or four and a half star plan, you get extra money to put into benefits so that the, the people that are shopping, they have the financial incentive, and that is very smart. So there are ways to use quality information in a way that drives people towards higher quality providers, and mm -hmm. I think that's a great example of that.
Let's uh, maybe end this segment on talking about, you know, sort of how to manage the care for these specialty populations, populations with needs, whether it's behavioral health integration, long-term care, support mm -hmm. services, dual eligibles, uh, whatever the case may be. It seems as though we want to first innovate or encourage innovation because we don't have the, the models necessarily available widespread. But at the same time, we have to worry about regulating that as well and make sure it, it actually plays out uh, uh, Matt, I, I imagine your organization thinks a lot about this. Yeah, we do, because, you know, these are, you know, some of these populations, whether it's the, the Medicare, Medicaid dual eligibles, um, who, you know, actually represent, they're a relatively small number of people, they represent 40% of Medicaid spending. Or whether it's, um, you know, it's the 1% the of our population that accounts for 25% of our costs, the 5% of the population that accounts for 50% of the costs. That's the holy grail. If we can figure out how to improve the care and, and, and bring the cost down for that group, then we'll have figured all of this out. And that's what so much is, is so much is happening right now across the states in the delivery system reforms and payment reforms. And it basically boils down to, and again, you can lots of different acronyms for it, but building the patient-centered care, you know, building teams of people. Uh, trying to break down the silos. There's a, you know, a physical health, there's a behavioral health, there's pharmaceutical, there's long-term care. They're all separate. You got to break them down and figure out how to get the patient what they need. And in many, in many ways, the key way to do that, because let's face it, we live and we work and we operate in a capitalist society, you have to change the financial incentives that are inherent in the system. And for so long, the financial incentives have been to just do more, to spend more, and to just throw money where there is a lot of need, and not to intervene. And there's never been a financial incentive to get people healthy and to keep them healthy. And fig but figuring out the data, the metrics, and the payment philosophies, and the provider engagement that's the really hard part. And you know, we have these funny models out there. So we carve out uh, mental health and, and substance abuse services, and then the data aren't allowed to be shared across the boundaries. So nobody could really manage without the information, right? That's right. So we've created these kind of managed care entities that really take care of a part of a person. Mm -hmm. And these really and have to be stop. rejoined. Mm -hmm. it, has right. to, it has to stop. That's right. You, you've got you've got to have you can one, sort it out, yeah. and you can share data. Right. But, but you but, have to have yeah. one entity. Exactly. Is, is it a managed care organization? Is it an ACO? I don't. I don't know. I don't care what it is. There's got to be one entity that has all of the financial risk mm -hmm. upstream, downstream for a patient, yep. and the tools and the levers to change coverage policy to affect that individual. So maybe last question before we move on to our next segment. So with the need to innovate here, both in terms of delivery system integration and, and also financing, I mean, do we envision something like a CMMI for Medicaid? I mean, will there be pilot demonstrations, uh, experimentation, taking advantage of the fact that we have you know, many different I th programs? I think we have that kind of innovation going on. I think the challenge is catching up with it, assessing it in a hard-nosed way and really being able to make comparisons. I mean, part of the problem with a proliferation of innovation, if everybody's doing something different and they're all measuring it in a mm -hmm. different way, at the end of the day, you don't really know what worked. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. no, I think that's right. I think yeah, we, we have a CMMI mm -hmm. for Medicaid. Mm -hmm. um, we ha and we have state 56 states that are innovating in different ways, exactly to Peggy's point. The the, what we need, though, is rather than letting, rather than continuing to let a thousand flowers bloom in, per, in perpetuity, it's to figure out what are those pieces, delivery system, payment reforms, quality metrics, what have you, that, yes, those are the ones and build those in for everybody. Raise the boat, raise everyone's boat. Have that become a core part of the healthcare system, whether it's Medicaid or Medicare or the VA or employers. So we don't get this demo right. fatigue. Well, let's move on now and we wanna talk about the crossroads of innovation, coverage and competition, which as you can imagine, pretty much includes uh, everything that we might, uh, might talk about. I wanna start with um, competition in the insurance market. Uh, this summer, July in particular, was merger month, it, it seems, with uh, three major uh, mergers announced. There was the Aetna Humana uh, merger, the Anthem Cigna merger, and the Centene HealthNet merger, um, all the largest really ever uh, that were proposed. And, and if approved, of course, this is still undergoing approval by the, uh, the feds, the Department of Justice, the big five insurers would consolidate to the big three. I guess a question is sort of, is this consolidation good? What's driving it? And uh, I think both Austin and Leah, you'll have perspectives on this. Maybe Austin, we'll start with you. Yeah, I, I'm not just gonna give my perspective. I'm gonna give the perspective of, the, of almost all health economists. There's unanimity on this issue that when you have consolidation among health insurers or providers, um, you generally don't get good results for consumers. What you generally get are higher prices, sometimes higher quality, but not always. And, then you and when you do get higher quality, you have to ask, is the higher quality worth the higher price? And, and that an analysis needs to be done. But by and large, when you're, when you're consolidating from say five to three insurers, you're, you're way past the point where you don't have enough uh, to get the best uh, deals for, for, for employers or for, um, for consumers. But this has to be put in the context of a lot of mergers going on at the provider level too, right? And I know you know that, Austin. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we've had unbelievable, I mean, if you look around Washington, D.C., there are some big systems that don't live near each other but are carrying a common label. And it's kind of a branding exercise rather than actual on-the-ground difference in what, go what goes on in these institutions. So you don't get the quality lift that you might expect from the higher brand necessarily. Mm -hmm. And you get this market uh, power that is abused, actually. Mm -hmm. So Leah, how about uh, from your perspective? You work with employers who are, I'm sure, are concerned about this. You do uh, hospital ratings where you're seeing the product of this consolidation, probably in terms of uh, delivery systems that are now uh, part of each other that, that used to not be. Um, any thoughts on this stuff? Yeah, I mean, the the industry has fundamentally changed in only a couple of years. It's it's very concerning. Um, I think the the studies that have been done on uh, consolidations of, of hospital systems have not been promising in terms of what they deliver in terms of cost control or quality improvement. In fact, they do the opposite. They the Quality usually goes down and costs go up. So that consolidation trend is concerning. Uh, I'm sure it's prompting the consolidations we're seeing in, in among health plans. That's also a major concern uh, because that could clearly um, uh, also increase costs. And I think employers for a long time have been frustrated, frankly, by health plans because they feel that they haven't gotten what they needed in terms of managing um, 
quality, really doing a good job with quality management and network selection. And I think part of what's mo motivating the consolidations or maybe making plans a bit nervous about the future is the fact that purchasers are getting much more aggressive in wanting to make sure that they are, that they're managing their costs more aggressively. I think they're, they're doing a lot more uh, of their own narrow network selections, more steerage of employees, much more uh, transparency, uh, as I talked about earlier, about pricing and quality. So there's a, really a, an emerging, m more muscular purchaser out there. And I suspect that plans are beginning to wonder, well, what role are we going to play if the purchaser is going to do uh, the part that involves quality and cost? So I think um, that is also motivating this, but both trends in the market, hospitals and plans, are very concerning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, this all comes at the uh, at a point in time where the premium forecast on the exchanges are astounding. I mean, twenty to forty percent premium increases, yeah. and some of that I know is is uh, trickling over to what employers are, are uh, at least being predicted to to pay. Um, so on the one hand, we have uh, projected high premiums kind of in the exchanges kind of for the, for the next year. And some are arguing that this consolidation really is necessary in order to actually decrease premiums to sort of deal with all the, the bureaucracy and the regulations and, and ultimately create efficiencies that will drive that down. I mean, what's the, what's the logic looking, behind that? You have a look on your face, Austin. So uh, this is where people, uh, especially when they're promoting a, a particular agenda, uh, kind of conflate different ideas and concepts. So there's no question that consolidation can, uh, can, not necessarily, but can lead to efficiencies for the organization that is consolidating, right? They can, they can merge their IT departments, they can merge their human resources, they can, they can uh, you know, just streamline things, and that may, that may reduce their costs, but that doesn't right. necessarily reduce the cost of those who are paying, because now this organization has right. bigger market power. And the same thing plays out when you have the, the idea, and, I, and I've expressed this as well, that, well, maybe the, um, Maybe insurance consolidation will sort of offset the provider consolidation. So you have, you know, the you know the the, the gorilla over here, and so you have the other gorilla over here, and they'll like bang heads, and you know it all work out. Well, it's possible. And in fact, studies do show that when insurers have more market power, they do get better prices from from providers. Uh, they can negotiate those prices downward. But but when you translate that to what what consumers pay, which are premiums, that doesn't necessarily pass through because now you have a larger insurer that can just command more market power in the in the market where they, they sell their product. So um, you can talk, you can see, I mean, probably that was just confusing to most listeners. And, and so people are able to talk around this and, and talk about efficiencies and savings and so forth and even point to some, but you have to be really careful. What price are they pointing to? Are they pointing to the price that the insurer pays the hospital? Or are they talking to the price that the consumer pays the insurer? And those are two different things. Yeah, you, don't, you don't want the consumer being the bunch of bananas stuck between those two Precisely. angry exactly. gorillas. Right. Well, and, you know, and all this, it, it's, it's all about checks and balances. And you know, we, with, with insurance companies and hospitals and other providers and payers and, and the consumer, when you, when you tilt the market, with consolidation, you have you do have a, a you run a real risk of upsetting that set of, of checks and balances. And I then need I need to be real careful. I think too much focus on the premium is also a problem. I was in an Uber the other day, and the, I, I always talk to them about health insurance. And the guy says, "Well, he he, it's him and his two children who are six and ten, and um, he picked the lowest premium on the exchange mm -hmm. in Maryland, and um, his." deductible is $6,500 a year. Okay, so he's an Uber driver, and um, he has another job doing property management, maintenance kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But he will probably, they're all healthy, if he's lucky, he probably will never actually 
get an insured event. And, and think about right. it. It's mm -hmm. all coming out of pocket because yeah. now think about that in terms of what the public is going to sense in terms of the value of what they're buying. So I think the other thing about that is that these high deductibles, as employers look at that and as they look at the Cadillac tax, which we're going to talk about, it's very um, enticing to just go with a high deductible. It's kind of simple. You know, there's a, there's a message you can tell. Instead of like going back and sort of saying, well, we'll pay 50% for this and 80% for that and so forth. And, um, so I think that there's a, there's a conflation of a whole lot of different numbers that's incredibly mystifying and angering to a lot of consumers. In terms of transparency, I think this is a, a great issue, right? Um, sort of what you get for the premium you pay and what exposure to risk you have. Uh, employers have been moving in this direction. I mean, Leah, is uh, LeapFrog or anyone else that you're aware of thinking about transparency on this domain? You know, the trade-off between the, uh, the value that one gets for a high deductible plan or, you know, relative to a, a more traditional plan? Uh, I think that there's been a lot of uh, attention paid to how to manage a high deductible plan, but less attention to what's the difference. I think it's happened so rapidly, I don't even think anyone's had a chance to step back and ask the question. Um, the research is just starting to catch up. I think there's been a little Although bit. Although we have a lot of research from, like, Pitney mm -hmm. Bowes from 15 years ago or 20 yeah. years ago about what happened when they put in a high deductible plan and all their diabetics got worse, and then they went in and jiggered it around. And it feels like we're going to have to relive a lot of that mm -hmm. in we, terms of the, what, what gets covered. Yeah. Well, I think some all. employers are trying to do some of the creative kinds of benefits packages that you mentioned, Peggy. I mean, uh, for example, Federal Express is doing, um, they waive all, uh, all co-pays of any sort for people with diabetes, so right. and it's an example, but it's hard for them to do it. Actually, you have to kind of get around a lot of the new regulations under the Affordable Care Act in order to, to, to do it. But I do think that the issue with high deductibles is changing the market for, for good or bad. It is totally transforming the market. It's a train on the tracks. It's happening, and I do think Actually, your analogy is exactly right. I think consumers are the, the bananas in between the gorillas. Absolutely, they are, they are really out there on their own. They're managing their own care, uh, often with their own money, and it is changing everything. And I think that will, in fact, have an impact. Some of it is going to be a good impact, but it's going to be very, very hard for, for people to manage it in their own lives. It's, very, it's hard on, on families, but it is, it is changing things. There's also a lot of evidence that consumers have a hard time uh, picking plans in these markets. Yes. There's evidence yeah. from Medicare Part D, from Medicare Advantage, and um, uh, emerging evidence from the marketplace uh, marketplaces, although we don't have a lot of information there, that uh, consumers are confused. Uh, some of them have never had insurance before. Many of them don't even understand the concepts that we're talking about. So when they go and they see, you know, choice of 40 plans, different premiums, different deductibles across different time periods, different kinds of providers, uh, co-payments and so forth. It's enormously confusing. They don't know their own costs or what the costs are going to be. Studies have also shown that when you provide them with uh, either a smart default or um, cost estimators that are fairly accurate, you kind of make that really easy for them to, 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 uh, to consume. And you give them some education, they do a lot better. They yeah. understand and they make better yeah. choices. Mm -hmm. so, so insurance is really about assumption of risk. And Peggy mentioned earlier kind of uh, consolidation on the provider side. We also see risk, at least if you believe kind of the popular press, risk being assumed by providers as well. 
So when we think about plans assuming risk or providers assuming risk, has the balance of where that risk is held changed or is it changing? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure what's happening in the private sector with this too much, but um, on the Medicaid, Medicare ACOs, there are kind of a lot of people hanging out in the shared savings model, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. um, that's really not the intention to, to sort of stay with no downside risk. Mm -hmm. I mean, as one of my board members says, no downside risk means no risk, right? Mm -hmm. right? right. That's right. It, it, what are you seeing in Medicaid? Similar story? Or? Absol absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, one of the, you know, when I talk to providers, primary care physicians or what have you, and you know, I talk about the things that are happening, and you know, the, the risk models that are changing, and capitation, and all this stuff. You know, their their first reaction is to kind of say, "Well, I don't I don't really get that." I mean, because, you know, how can how can I, as the primary care doctor, be held responsible? How can I be held at risk for patient behavior that is outside of my control? You know, I've got these four walls in my office. Somebody walks in. They present with a condition, I diagnose, I treat, I give them a plan of care, they walk out, what happens? I don't know, I can't control that. Are they taking their meds or not? Are they filling them? I, don't, I can't control that. Are they engaging in risky behaviors again? I can't, but the key is, well no, you don't influence or control that now. Well, that's because we've never actually given you a financial incentive to do so. And so what's happening in places like Arkansas, where they're um, building patient-centered medical homes with, with shared savings, is they're, they're empowering the physician to create these teams. And so it's the physician as the quarterback, but they've got nurses, but they've got social workers, and they've got community health workers, people who can follow the individual outside of the four walls. Where do they live? Do they live in a big urban high-rise? Do they live in a shack down by the river? You can figure out how to tailor your engagement with the patient that way. And so the, the risk has to change, but the tools have to change as well. If it's mm -hmm. not team-based, it won't work. Right. And if you don't have the data, I mean, we've seen miraculous things happen when there's actually data provided at the point of care that says so-and-so yeah. is needing to have their, their uh, diabetes care adjusted mm -hmm. because they're out of control. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's quite possible by mm -hmm. linking different data systems to give the practitioners the right information at the right time. Right. A handful of purchasers have been very interested in the ACO model and have actually started working directly with these ACOs to, to sort of work through some of these transition issues because it doesn't happen overnight. Just because you say, here's the incentive on the table, right. everybody doesn't suddenly change right. their behavior. So they have been skeptical that that would happen and they feel they were right to be skeptical because they've seen how that transition has unfolded. But I do think that there, it is promising, but it, it is promising if it's well managed by either uh, government, uh, if it's Medicaid or Medicare, or uh, or the private sector purchasers themselves, or and we or need to get payers together because right. if everybody's got a mm -hmm. different model, uh, Medicare here, Medicaid here, private yeah. payer X, Y, That's and right. Z there, that doesn't Absolutely. work. In some cases, these drugs too are uh, 
efficacious and appropriate for certain segments of the mm -hmm. population, yes. like the cholesterol drugs, but not for the entire population right. when the statin works just fine. So this gets into care management issues and how we make these decisions, which some people might view as rationing. Um, it's not I mean, rationing, it's using I, I appropriately. Agree, but, but, I, but and we shouldn't the, conflate uh, the terms. Right, but, but how do we make sure that that's not how it's, uh, it's viewed? I mean, how do we do medical management in a way that's appropriate and sell that to the populations we're covering and to the American public? It's hard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, I think there's, there's a couple, as, as I think Peggy alluded to, there's a couple of different problems going on here. I mean, you know, one of which, you know, we can focus on the hepatitis C space, and that's gotten the most attention because $1,000 a pill, you know, kind of uh, shocked people. Now, on some level, this is a good problem to have. We have a cure for hepatitis C. This is great, great news. However, it has been priced pegged at a liver transplant, which only a very, very, very small fraction of the three million people, a million of which are on Medicaid, uh, of people with hep C will ever need and certainly will need now. So you can't just sort of say, well, we're going to provide this drug to everybody who needs it, reference priced off a, you know, a small fraction. And, you know, similarly, um, you know, I hear, you know, pharma talks a lot about, you know, the value of the cure. And I think there's something legitimate about that. But, you know, when I, when I hear them talk about, because we know there are Alzheimer's drugs in development, when they start talking about, you know, the overall cost of what Alzheimer's does to this country in terms of nursing home in, you know, institutionalizations and, and, and family caregiving, et cetera, and they start throwing around the trillions number, I get a little worried that that's what the reference pricing for Alzheimer's drugs is going to be. We got, it's got to be more rational than that. You know, the hepatitis C thing, I think, is on some level unique because it is legitimately a public health threat. It is a communicable disease, and if we can cure it, we should. The problem is that we're, it, we're not set up to do that. And, you know, when we figured out vaccines or cures for smallpox or polio, did we, go, did we sort of throw it out into the market and say, yeah, we'll figure out a way, people will figure out a way to pay for this? No, we had a national strategy, so I, we need that. On the, on the generic side, you know, today's story was shocking. There's lots more like yeah. that. It's happening yeah. all over the place uh, in the generic space. Um, but I think, that, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, on the Medicaid side, um, you know, one of the things that frustrates us as payers is that we're, we're constrained in the sense that we ha Medicaid has to cover every single drug that is approved by the FDA. So we can't do kind of the, well, we'll just do two drugs in this class or, you know what, I don't, we don't think that one's cost effective, so we're not going to cover it. We've got to cover everything. We had to cover Viagra when that came out. You know, so I, there are some common sense changes to the statute in Medicaid that could make a lot of sense for us. I, I knew, this issue is really frustrating because for so many reasons, but a, a major reason for me is that I don't see one easy solution. It is, right. uh, there are going to have to be a number of 
uh, a number of approaches, but I do know this much, that every purchaser I've ever talked to is absolutely furious about this. This is a huge issue for employers. Um, when I look at a Savaldi, you know, they, I look at the, the uh, growth curves in the costs for employers, and it's front and center, right in the middle of it. It is driving their costs through the roof, and even more so, it's risky. They don't know what's going to happen next year. What's the next drug that's going to come along and, you know, just throw their whole uh, benefits program out of whack? Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know how long employers are going to keep uh, keep in that game. They can't afford a risky, continual jerking up of their uh, of their costs. Uh, and so we do have to figure out something. What perhaps it's that Medicare, the cost of doing business with Medicare is you have to negotiate a reference price. Um, maybe that's part of it. We start to throw around the um, some of the heft of the Medicare program to start to to bring these costs into some reasonable realm and to bring reassurance to the market of employers who have to pay these costs. Yeah. So, so part of uh, pharma's response to this would be, well, you know, there's the R&D side of this, and, you know, we have to invest, and some drugs uh, make it through the pipeline, some don't. Uh, there's something called the 21st Century Cures Act, um, and uh, this is purported to do a, a number of things, and I think there's uh, different views on its effectiveness. Any, any thoughts on, on that act? Yeah, no, help I, in these? yeah I mean, I, you know, we're, we're all for cures. We, we want to see more cures, but I think the, the challenge of what that piece of legislation would do is that, you know, A, it assumes that there isn't enough incentive for R&D now, and there aren't enough, um, you know, rewards out there. I, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is, you know, by far the most profitable sector in, in healthcare, probably, probably, if not the U.S. economy. Part of the challenge, though, is that the, the way 21st century cures would work is that some of the incentives would be to extend those market exclusivities, extend the patent life. From the, Medi from the Medicaid experience, we know that's what keeps prices high. You know, when Savaldi hit the market uh, and it was the only drug that cured hep C, we couldn't negotiate lower prices because the manufacturer didn't need to. Why bother? When a second drug hit the market, when AbbVie got in, then we were able to bring prices down. Not nearly far enough, but we were able to bring them down. If we were to have given Gilead an extra two, three, four years of market exclusivity, we would still be paying out the nose for that. The other piece is that it would um, speed to market a lot of, a lot of uh, innovations, which sounds great, but what that means is curtailing some of the uh, clinical trials and patient safety issues, which, again, in Medicaid, Medicaid has the oldest, the sickest, the frailest, the most medically complex, the most number of interrelated, um, you know, social medical needs. This is not a population you want to speed up efficacy. You want to make sure that you're not using the Medicaid population as guinea pigs mm -hmm. for this. So that's, I think those are some of our concerns. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, my, my concern about all, all this is that you know, this is not just something that, you know, the government is doing. This is, this is, as a society, we're making decisions about how much market exclusivity to, to grant, to grant uh, uh, drug manufacturers. And I don't think you can do that and then walk away and say, and then whatever the price is, the price is. Right. I think market exclusivity is, the it is clearly the mechanism by which prices initially start quite high. 
And therefore, we as a society have an obligation to look at that, and, and we have a right to manage it in some fashion. Now, we haven't decided how to do that. There's lots of ideas. They have strengths and limitations and, and implications for R&D and so forth. That's all true. But what you can't do is just grant market exclusivity right. and say, and the price is whatever you guys want right. to charge. That's right. just not going to fly anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, there are certain clinical areas where we, we could uh, stand to use some innovation, right? So a antibiotics, for example, I think yeah. the development has right. been uh, sort of underdeveloped. People well, I mean, that's it. partly a matter of overuse. So we're, mm -hmm. you know, we're kind of outrunning the science um, in terms of our overuse of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So it's more complicated, but it is, it is a yeah. problem. Yeah, very, very much. Yeah, so. I think on some level we need, and I'm, this may come across as hopefully naive, but you know, I think about sort of the the technology industry and you know Moore's law, which sort of says you know the the capacity of you know the electronics is going to double every 18 months, and we've seen that for decades, and that's why you know the power of my iPhone is greater than the computer that landed, you know, a man on the moon, um, and at far far cheaper. And I know that's not going to work here in the pharmaceutical space, but I wonder, isn't there a way to think about that? Shouldn't innovations in the medical space, in the healthcare space, lead to reduced costs and not greater? Not when you have fee-for-service medicine and all well, kinds of other distortions. Well, your, your iPhone example is apt because uh, I, mean, I don't know how much it costs to, for the computational power of putting a man on the moon, but I, I would bet what we're collectively paying for the iPhone today is far more. So it's highly mm. effective, but mm -hmm. it's broadly applicable mm -hmm. and widely purchased, and therefore the total budget for IT and for cell phones is much, much bigger than it ever has been. Let's talk about innovative payment and delivery models. And of course, we've talked a little bit about this uh, uh, thus far, but this is clearly an area where there is no shortage of acronyms, right? Uh, we've heard about the ACOs and the PCMH and, uh, and a whole variety of other types of arrangements. I, I guess a, a question I'd like to start off with is, uh, you know, given these models and some of the uh, testing and piloting that has been done, for example, uh, by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid uh, Innovation, um, what have we learned? Are they working? Um, I think some of them are working. Uh, I, you know, I think that there's a mindset in policy about does X work, where if you go out into the world where people run enterprises, it's not does X work, it's we're doing X and we're making it better all the time and we're constantly adjusting and so forth. I think, though, that until we have price uh, uh, payment policies where you get rewarded if you're more efficient, and think yeah. about that. You don't currently get rewarded mm -hmm. if you become mm -hmm. more efficient. Correct. Become more efficient, you lose money. So who in their right mind is going to do that in, in a fee-for-service system? Uh, we do measures on overuse, okay? So we just have a new measure on prostate cancer uh, screening for men over 70. Now, the, the urologists actually have come out against this. There's a lot mm -hmm. of harm that's done, people being overtreated for prostate cancer, all kinds of bad impacts and so forth. What do you think the prostate cancer screening rate is in Medicare Advantage plans for men over 70? 40%. I don't know what it is in classic Medicare, but that's just an example. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I can measure overuse till the cows come home. As long as people are making money by overuse, they will do it. Mm -hmm. So we need a payment system that really gets people's incentives lined up in the right way. Yeah. So what does that look like? I mean, you talked earlier about 
the assumption of risk and essentially said, well, we have shared savings, but shared savings is an assumption of risk. I, I mean, I, I believe in capitation. You know, there may be things that you need to carve out that are extraordinary and so forth, but, you know, we have, we have people like Austin that can figure that out, right? <laughs> um, and, and very effectively. Um, for PCMHs, I mean, if you have a PCMH that doesn't get paid extra for doing care management, they are going, they're going to blow up. They can't do it. We've asked them now to take on a whole responsibility for population health management. They need a team. They need systems. They need to invest in all this. So you've got to give them a care management fee. Mm -hmm. So it depends on what level you're talking about. But if you're trying to get towards a more holistic problem-solving approach, fee-for-service is not going to do it. That's right. And I, I think part of the key is going to be you know, looking at shared savings or bundled payments or whatever they are, it, they're great in theory, but they have to be paired with the Quality tools issues. to be able to get there. Mm -hmm. So, and I think this is going to be true all up and down the line. So for a primary care physician, you can't just say, well, we're going to bundle your payment and you sh you'll share savings. It's well, to do that, you need to set up a patient-centered medical home, and here's how you do it. Here, we'll help you. Here's how you structure it. Here's how you hire. Here are some interconnected IT systems. You're going to need help. Similarly, you know, I think, um, you know, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but patient engagement. How do you get the patient more engaged? Right. Well, you have to figure out what's going to motivate them, and it's not just, you know, you're going to be on the hook for, X, Y, or Z. You can't just say, you know, if the concern is people are overutilizing the ER, you can't just say, all right, well, we're slapping a $100 copay on the ER. You got to figure out, okay, why? Why are these families using the ER? Is it because they work two jobs that don't have childcare and that's the only thing open when they're free? Is it because uh, they're reliant on public transportation, and every bus line in the city drops you off at the hospital, that none of them drop you off at a clinic. You've got to figure out why are they doing what they're doing that's wrong, and how do you empower them to do the right thing? We have to link payment with tools. I guess a couple yeah. questions here. I mean, does the payment sort of create the incentive to develop tools? Do we need to have the tools before we change the payment? No. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know. You, you need to do both at mm -hmm. the same time. I mean, that's the reality. Other industries figured out this stuff a very long time ago. Um, you know, I, I'm sure that um, car manufacturers have figured out how to bring all, all the pieces together and sell it in the open market. and and if their product is not high quality, then they can't sell it and they lose money. So I think to Peggy's earlier point, there has to be downside risk for, uh, and it needs to be implemented immediately. I think bundled payments, every other industry has figured out some way or another how to bundle services and offer the consumer one price. We gotta do that uh, in healthcare. Yes, it's incredibly difficult, it's gotta be done. Um, and I know we're certainly moving in that direction very, very slowly, but we are moving there. Uh, but I do think that whatever we call it, and we have a lot of acronyms and names for these things, basically we do need to, to really push the healthcare system away from fee-for-service. It's not a, a gentle nudge. It is a push because this is the, I think it's the way to get the attention of, uh, of providers is when they, it's clear to them that the incentives are, are obvious and that they can lose if they don't 
uh, start to play ball with this new And then way. all of a sudden you create new industries as well. Of uh, There are so many entrepreneurs mm -hmm. out there yes, solving health data problems and mm -hmm. so forth. So, uh, you know, it may be awkward in the short term in the mm -hmm. transition as it always is when you make big changes. But I think we've got to be we've got to be determined to go towards this. And I'm very impressed with what's happened with MACRA. Um, I'm impressed with the, the commitment of the secretary to value-based payment and mm -hmm. so forth. So I think that the will is there. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of political pushback, and whether we'll get there, I don't know. But um, I feel like, for once, uh, you know, there seems to be a determination to move towards this value-based mm -hmm. payment. And there needs to be accountability and transparency yes, also. That's absolutely. critically important. Otherwise, we could go in the wrong direction and not even know absolutely. it. Um, so I think that piece is, it's, and it's something CMS has taken a lot of leadership on, but we need to in ensure that that's incorporated. Yeah. So I think, I mean, but I think, and I think the ultimate question will be, what's the best way to take a lot of these? Because you know, individual state Medicaid programs are doing a lot of things. The SIM grants um, at CMMI are doing a lot of things. Uh, Medicare is doing a variety of things. What's what's going to be the best vehicle to take all of these different things and say, are we going to pick one, or are we going to pick five, or are we going to pick a theme? and translate that. You know, is it going to be Medicare? Is it going to be Medicare saying, well, we're one program, we're in all 50 states, we're just going to do X? No, I or don't think so. I don't think so. But we have to figure out. Otherwise, it's just, again, it's the individual flowers popping up. And yeah, how do it's you... not 1,000 flowers, but it might be 10. Right. <laughs> well, even if you take one How do you concept, go to scale? Like yeah. PCMH. I mean, uh, in the past year or so, there's been conflicting studies, right, from the same state on the value of the patient-centered medical home. Mm -hmm. So a mm -hmm. question is... Time one and time um, two. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, yeah. what's a delivery system to make of this? You know, the, the PCMH model sounds simple, but there's a lot of heterogeneity when we think yeah. about sort of the way... Well, in especially when out. people are out there spawning all kinds of things called PCMHs that aren't. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm bitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, other uh, other innovative payment models, um, we talked about bundled payment, and uh, Austin, you referred to CalPERS uh, a little while ago. Were you talking about the hip and knee um, reference price payments? Yeah, they're doing it for a number of things now. Hip and knee is where they started um, doing colonoscopies. They're, they're doing a f uh, other surgical um, procedures, and what they're doing is um, finding uh, providers with, with adequate quality and, and, and looking at the prices of those and, and pegging a price, say, for a knee replacement to, to that you know, price where this provider or this set of providers can, can provide it, making sure their, um, their policyholders have access to enough of those, but also saying you can go anywhere you like, uh, and we're only paying this price, but if you go somewhere that costs more, maybe, maybe you like it, it's, maybe it's more convenient, or maybe, uh, maybe you think the quality is worth it, uh, you have to pay for that out of pocket. And they found that that's uh, yielded a tremendous price reduction, changes in the market, um, you know, uh, I think on the order of 20, 30% in some, some areas. Uh, so it's been successful for, for CalPERS. Um, there's also been some pushback by others about to the extent to which it can be uh, generalized, particularly to other kinds of populations who maybe can't shop around as easily. Uh, what you need are, you can't do this in markets where you don't have enough providers to have the variety, you know, so people can, can make this, these kind of decisions. You can't do it in places where you don't have the transparency on price and quality. So there are limitations, but at least for CalPERS, it's been fairly successful. Mm -hmm. 
Another model that's really interesting is what Walmart's done, which is, uh, and some other large employers have done this as well, but they've really been leaders. They picked six health systems that they believe are extremely high quality, team-based medicine, uh, and they have uh, said that for spinal surgery, uh, their employees can go to one of these six facilities. They will waive all co-pays. They'll pay for two people to go out with, with them, et cetera, and, uh, and they can get a second opinion, and if they want, they can get the treatment there. They um, have found uh, uh, that this has been very successful, great, vast improvements in quality, but also to their surprise. Um, there were a, a lot of procedures that were recommended in communities that uh, Cleveland Clinic or Mayo said, nope, they don't need that. Right. And so the overuse issue has become something now that is uh, very much front and center for, for a lot of large employers as a result of the, the Walmart experience. Mm -hmm. Peggy, on the, uh, the measurement side, of course, NCQA has measured quality uh, for years. This area of cost and efficiency is an area that you're involved in, and it's receiving quite a We've bit of attention. We've got all the scars. Yeah, I mean, but, but to Austin's <laughs> point, um, transparency is key. So what can you tell us about where we stand realistically in terms of, uh, you know? I actually think that the change has to come through the payment model and holding the system accountable for the quality not through the quality measures driving people to more efficient providers. We've spent years doing, um, we, we're collecting data on relative re resource use for chronically ill populations. We see very, very big variations on what it costs to give excellent diabetes care in different health mm -hmm. plans around the country. But people don't really know what to make of that. They don't know what to do with it. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of informed a lot of research, but it really hasn't changed the market. Mm -hmm. So I, I really think that once you have the right payment system, and by the way, I believe in aligning the patient's incentives as well with, with the provider's incentives. So if, if yes. Medicare is going to use PCMHs and ACOs, why not give an incentive to the patient to go to those, especially if they are high-need patients that are going to do better? Mm -hmm. I think that that alignment is actually That's the right point. thing to so do. So that new Medicaid, uh, what, next generation model, uh, mm -hmm. supposedly is going to allow exactly. for that. Exactly. Um, That's great. But how much of that variation that you just mentioned uh, for diabetes care in terms of episode uh, cost or pricing is due to utilization differences versus it's market pricing differences? It's utilization, because we standardize the prices. That's an, another okay. reason people find it kind of odd, but mm -hmm. that's the way it is. Um, it's utilization, but it is, utilization is not a fact of nature. Utilization right. is a behavior of the delivery system, mm -hmm. right? And um, oftentimes it's inappropriate, and, and it's disquality, actually, when you have too much utilization. Mm -hmm. so. so on the utilization side, I'm wondering if any of you have uh, thoughts on the Choosing Wisely campaign and how that's played out. Um, you know, it seemed uh, having specialty societies come up with lists and, you know, acknowledge publicly that there are things that are done that often shouldn't some be done. Some of them are good. That's what I've heard. And some of them <laughs> Some of them are, are not good. Not, uh, um, anybody want to expand on that? Well, I, I think it's a, a remarkable campaign. I actually think that it, it was kind of surprising. Maybe I'm too cynical, but I was actually surprised that these specialty societies were willing to put these lists together and really uh, and make a, a big splash about them. I mean, they didn't just sit back and say, well, yeah, maybe you shouldn't mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. They're really pushing it in their own communities as well as for all of us in the public. So that's a good thing. I think it's, it shows that there still is a sense that medicine has a higher purpose than money. That's a really good thing. So I thought I was very pleased with it. I'd like to see them go much farther. I mean, what they, they focused on were tests and um, preventive kinds of procedures that 
are not the big money. The, the big problems oh, are colonoscopies like, are big money. Well, that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but I mean, uh, like spinal surgery, mm -hmm. C-sections. Um, uh, the, there's a long list of mm -hmm. very uh, significant um, procedures that they did not address, and so I think that's the next step. Also, it's not really measurable, so we really don't know yet how much progress has been made in choosing wisely. So I'd like to see some our, effort to measure our PSA it. measure, I think that's in choosing wisely. I think we turned that into, we, we have two things that we were able. The problem with measuring with choosing wisely is that you have so many exceptions that right. it becomes a chart chasing exercise just mm -hmm. to have a measure, yeah. so not, not practical. A couple of you have mentioned uh, we need to get the uh, patient engaged and we need to think about uh, the patient's responsibility um, when it comes to, uh, to care. Uh, Matt, in a Medicaid population, I mean, do you see possibilities there? People often think that uh, some of these things that may work in employer populations are a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I think that the challenge is that, you know, the, what's being developed now and what they're calling the value-based insurance design, and, you know, Austin talked a, a little bit about this, you know, if you, you know, want to go off the preferred list for whatever reason, then, then you pay a little bit more or something. doesn't work in Medicaid because whether you do, whether you don't, the, the patient cost is effectively zero. But that just means you need to be more creative. You need to figure out, you know, there's probably going to have to be more, you know, more carrots than sticks. Um, you know, there are more, um, you, know, you got you to go to the patient to figure out what it is that actually is going to motivate them, you know. Um, you know, is it purely a convenience issue? And then, you know, okay, well, let's talk about are you going to, can we, set up minute clinics and get you there? Um, are there, you know, is, is childcare your biggest issue? Okay, well, let's figure out if you can do, you know, if you go to the, you know, the highest, highest quality, lowest price provider, maybe we can kick in some childcare subsidy or something like that. You, you can be creative. Um, and I think that's, um, it's complicated. But it's possible and it's important. And I, I think it, at the core of it, it's similar to what's happening. And we've talked about this a little bit, and hopefully we can talk a little bit more about the way that insurance in general is changing away from a strictly medical model and more towards embracing the social determinants of health. And to do so, everybody has to think very differently. Um, you know, covering social services and supports comes as a bit of a challenge for insurance companies and maybe even for physicians. Um, similarly, trying to figure out what do you need to engage the patient is going to require some different thinking. It's possible and it's necessary. Mm -hmm. so I, I, if I could just follow up on mm -hmm. that. I mean, in state budgets, there's a lot of different line items for social service providers. Right. And it's not always clear that they integrate well with right the big line item in, in terms of Medicaid. Are you seeing any uh, broader discussions, any change in that direction where, where the Medicaid program and other social service providers at the state government level are talking to each other and realizing how sure. much their work depends on each other? Yes. Now, you know, traditionally what's happened is that you know, Medicaid has a lot of visibility because it's the biggest line item in any state budget pretty much. Um, and because of the way it's financed, it's an open-ended entitlement. Um, Lots of other of those line items or silos within state budget, education, public health, corrections, mental health, et cetera, tend to look to Medicaid to say, oh, hey, I bet you can solve my budget problem. 
You know, if you just did this, wouldn't that be great for the patient or the system? Um, but what we're seeing now is, and that may be true, but the challenge is you have to have what I call kind of enlightened governance. You have to have somebody who, whether it's the governor or um, the legislature, the appropriations or finance committees, or whether it's a budget officer, somebody who is looking at all those line items and saying, I get it, I this makes sense. Because if you don't, then you know, what happens when Medicaid starts to pay for traditional public health functions? What happens when Medicaid tries to get much more engaged in school-based health functions? What happens when Medicaid tries to get more engaged in serving institutionalized correctional facility populations? The immediate thought, the immediate reaction in most places is Medicaid's growing out of control, time to clamp down on it. And no, none of these other sectors want their budgets reduced either. Right. right. So you, if, as long as you've got somebody who sort of says, ah, I get it. This is, we're going to spend more on Medicaid because it's going to reduce the state's exposure or it's going to do these things. I get it. I'm not going to freak out. Mm -hmm. Then we're, we're in good shape. Well, part of I that think, patient engagement is one of those issues where I think people uh, have excessively high expectations of the impact that it's going to have. But I do think that there are opportunity areas where, I mean, I, I was a very engaged pregnant mother, you know, and, and had two, you know, good normal deliveries and so forth. I don't know what happened to that. That sort of went backwards. <laughs> um, but end of life care, um, I, you know, the conversation project that Ellen Goodman is leading, I think that's great. Although it needs to be paired with a delivery system that is actually committed to honoring those end of life mm -hmm. wishes, which mm -hmm is really you know, not happening in a lot of these situations. So I think that uh, patient engagement is a necessary ingredient for making things happen, but the delivery system and the payment system have to support the patient mm -hmm. engagement. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I do think, I think Matt had a very important point about thinking about what kinds of incentives can you build creatively into a benefits design that are based on what people really value. So that can be money, but it can also be childcare or transportation or the other kinds of, of things. But our healthcare system has no tradition at all of caring at all about what patients think. Um, and we tend to try to define quality in a very scientific way according to what what's high quality for the most people, but what one person thinks is good for them may be different from another person. Um, and I think we need to start to understand those nuances. Again, other industries, they know those things. I mean, they know that sometimes the reason you want to buy a particular car is because you like the color. And that matters. That matters a lot to auto manufacturers, just as much as it matters to them that the engine actually functions properly. So I think we are going to have to completely change how we think about the perspective of the patient, how we incorporate that into the business of healthcare, and into the financing system. So imagine uh, redesigning a system with a patient in mind. What a, what well, a novel actually, idea. Though. It's kind of marketing. It's kind of marketing and it market is. segmentation and really understanding your customer. Yeah. So, uh, Austin, I wanted to ask you, um, with all these changes that are going on, and we've heard uh, and discussed a number of them, and many of them coming out of CMMI, the uh, Innovation Center, um, you're a researcher, uh, as am I. Are we taking time to study these appropriately and uh, ultimately learn the lessons um, 
you know, we've got so much going on, or are we moving a little too fast in terms of implementation without really understanding kind of what works and what doesn't? Well, I don't know if we're moving too fast, but I do, do know we're not moving too slow. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, uh, my colleagues around the country, you know, and you know them as well, are, are, are trying to keep up with the research. Um, that always seems to come out too late, but that's just kind of the way research is. Mm -hmm. um, but we do need to keep doing the research. We need the research to be funded. We need the data to be available and accessible. Um, and and it's, really, it's really the only way we're going to know what the, what the effects of these programs are is to have independent researchers do them. I, I, don't, I don't put a lot of weight into you know, official CMS um, press releases about what the results are. Usually they're comparing results to you know, not the comparison group or comparison group of uh, facilities that we as researchers would, would choose uh, or think appropriate. A lot of these programs are um, uh, facility, um, systems are self-selecting into them. You know, you self-select to be an ACO. Uh, and, and until uh, the most recent announcement, uh, bundled payments were also voluntary, I, I believe that's right. So um, you have a lot of concern about, about what the effects on, on biasing the results are. For our final segment, let's talk about the Affordable Care Act and what we have learned and where we see uh, the world going. Um, so the Affordable Care Act is about five years old. Of course, uh, various elements of it have just been implemented more recently. So it, it's, uh, the legislation was passed in 2010, but bits and pieces have, uh, uh, have been implemented. And of course, there have been some challenges as well, uh, resonating all the way up to the Supreme Court level. I guess I'd really like to just kind of hear from you all in terms of uh, what the effect of the ACA has been to date. And we can talk about this in a number of different areas. Um, why don't we start with coverage and access? That's uh, probably the most obvious one in terms of um, what, uh, what people often think about when they think about the ACA. Um, so uh, Austin, maybe I'll, I'll start with you. Um, I'm just going to start actually with, with an issue. I'm sure other people jump in on what, what's been accomplished. But um, the issue that I notice is that uh, though insurance uh, Rates have increased, you know, broadly. There's huge variation across states. Uh, that's because Medicaid expansion is not complete. It's because um, engagement with the, the health insurance marketplaces is not complete. Uh, it may be because what's being offered there is not attractive to all segments of the population. Whatever the reasons are, um, there's zero agreement about what to do about it. If if one thinks there is a right rate of insurance, maybe you think it's it's 100%, or maybe you think you know there's some sort of it's okay to have a few percent or something, but whatever you think it is, we're clearly not there everywhere, and we're not really having a conversation about what to do next about that because we still haven't gotten over, you know, is the ACA, you know, um, uh, you know <laughs> communism or is it, uh, is it a, you know, a great thing kind of, kind of debate. Mm -hmm. What about this notion of affordable insurance? We talked earlier about high deductibles, and on the exchanges, of course, you can have the uh, the gold plan, the silver plan, the platinum plan. Do we focus too much on how many people actually have an insurance card and uh, not enough on sort of what risk or, uh, or at what level of insurance they're at? Any thoughts on that? Um, I do think you're right about that. I think that's the right way to think about it. Um, and I, I'm a big proponent of value-based insurance design, but I'm also well aware, as I said before, that it's so much easier to say, the deductible is $5,000, period, mm -hmm. um, instead of saying, well, you know, the sleep center is, is not getting covered or the back surgery needs a prior authorization or whatever. Um, you know, it, it's much easier not to mm -hmm. micromanage, but the effect of these high deductibles is to unfortunately put barriers to appropriate care many times. So, um, I, you know, so I think there's a lot hidden under the insurance numbers that we need to be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. Leah, from, uh, you work with many um, large employers, some self-insured employers. 
Has the ACA, when we think of coverage and the exchanges and Medicaid expansion, has that had much of an impact on uh, the employer populations you work with in terms of their their covered population. Oh, very much so. Uh, starting with compliance, uh, I think most employers have spent pretty much a year, uh, the first couple years of ACA doing nothing but figuring out how to comply with it. There are enormous numbers of regulations that they've had to, to change. Um, I think they're frustrated with a couple of uh, recent um, uh, regulations that have come out um, that very abruptly changed the rules on them. So, for example, um, the, uh, a new uh, regulation just came out changing um, maximum out-of-pocket, uh, uh, out um, out of, maximum out-of-pockets for individual consumers. Now, it's, it's one thing to say, well, we are for or against that, but it's another thing to say plan, to employers make that change in a few months. It's an enormous uh, change for them. So there are a lot of compliance issues. They've also um, uh, have been very interested in the, in the value, uh, the, the movement toward value that the Affordable Care Act has, um, uh, has brought us through CMS, I think in a positive way. I think they're, they want to align with that. They're very interested in the measures that are being used. Um, I think they're also, however, concerned about the um, ACOs and the formation of broader networks uh, uh, for the reasons we discussed earlier of the consolidation of markets. So I think that, uh, and they're impacted by that uh, in a very dramatic way. And then finally, the biggest issue for consumer, uh, for, for employers is the Cadillac tax. Um, the Cadillac tax, um, which will, is slated to go into place in 2018, is uh, something that probably about 30% of employers at this point think will hit them immediately uh, in 2018. Others, it will uh, hit them within a few years of that. And so they are uh, really have been, for the past two years especially, taking any and all measures to, um, to reduce their costs. And I think that's part, that's a major reason for the high deductible plans. They, they want action now. They want their, they will not pay that tax. Mm -hmm. They don't want to. I mean, I, you know, we're a small company. We have 300 and some employees. And, um, we're, we project to be hit by the Cadillac tax mm -hmm. uh, because we have been against high deductibles. We, you know, we have copays and so forth. But if you think about it, if you're an employer and you're the last person standing without high deductibles, let alone the Cadillac tax, think about the adverse selection that you will get with your employees. Right. Um, so this is a huge issue, and I think I think the Cadillac tax is going to exacerbate this. Uh, feeling that if I'm too generous, I'm really going to pay a big price mm -hmm. for that. So if you haven't gone to high deductibles now, how in the world are you going to sort of decrease your exposure? Um, I don't know. It's a topic for another yeah, no, <laughs> no, actually, active conversations right now <laughs> yeah. within our company. Yeah. Um, how about, uh, so when we think of the ACA, um, any impacts on quality of care um, thus far? Well, I think there's a lot of pieces of the ACA that are driving towards some of these um, delivery system and payment reforms that we've been talking about. Um, you know, they don't, they don't, in many cases, they don't predate those. They, they've been underway. I think the ACA certainly gives some tools and gives some direction in there. Um, you know, I, do I think that will lead to better quality? Yes, I do. Have we demonstrated that has happened yet? I don't know. It may be too early. I will, I will refer to. I will defer to the economists. I mean, and the we researchers. can show you many measures that we've been doing that have improved dramatically. I mean, diabetes care, for example, the complication rate for diabetes is down by half, mm -hmm. and we're we're willing to take a lot of credit. <laughs> well, but the I, other I, thing we've seen is a. 
we have seen some improvements in safety uh, within yes, hospitals. Absolutely. And that's, of course, a, a, a huge problem. I mean, right. one in six people admitted to a hospital suffers an adverse event. That's crisis level, in my opinion. So uh, we have seen some incremental change in that. And certainly in some communities, dramatic change, in particularly in certain measures such as central line infections. So that uh, will have an enormous impact on, uh, for all of us. So, yes. And that's driven really uh, in large part by CMS and the, the new value-based payment uh, reforms, which, which really have had a, a significant they, they impact. They need to be applauded for their courage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. What about preventive services uh, coverage and uptake? I mean, that was a component of, of the ACA. Do we know much on the measurement side about where that stands? Uh, uh, the preventive services, uh, we haven't seen any big um, increase in performance on preventive services, but, um, you know, I think people are confused about first dollar coverage. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know yet. Great. Um, we see a lot of variation across plans. So I was visiting a plan recently um, where they make it their business to, at every visit, somebody has the information about gaps in preventive services and so forth. And they actually have eliminated disparities, believe it or not. Wow. Racial and ethnic disparities um, on, on the preventive services. That's pretty amazing. Great. So there's certainly been uh, some legal challenges to the Affordable Care Act, the two Supreme Court rulings in particular. Any other legal challenges or battles that are forthcoming? Yeah, there is one that's working its way uh, through the courts, and there was a recent decision on it. And it is about the cost-sharing subsidies. These are not the, the premium subsidies that people get in the exchanges, but also cost-sharing subsidies that are available to uh, um, purchasers who are below 250% of the poverty line. And it turns out that um, though the law says that insurers will be reimbursed by the federal government for the expense of that, um, Congress never appropriated the funds for it. And the administration has been reimbursing insurers anyway. So if this lawsuit goes forward, uh, and, and, and the recent decision was that the House does have standing to bring the suit, um, then it will be, uh, remains to be seen what will happen as to exactly how those costs will be reimbursed. Um, the insurers will still be on the hook for them. So it's not about whether um, uh, consumers will get the subsidy. It's about how insurers will be reimbursed for them, whether it will be sort of in kind of real time or whether they have to go through an elaborate, you know, exercise to get reimbursed. I'd like to wrap up by giving each of you just the opportunity to uh, share your thoughts on some of the topics we've talked about today and, and sort of what you think are the, uh, the biggest issues that we need to kind of keep monitoring going forward. So I think um, I'd say a couple things. One thing we didn't, we didn't talk much about um, is long-term care. And there's a lot of things in the ACA. There's almost nothing in there on long-term care. Um, Medicaid, much to many people's surprise, is by far the largest payer for long-term care in this country. Um, and it, it accounts for a pretty sizable portion of our budget. And that's a, a component that is only going to grow and potentially grow exponentially. It's something that I think we should be very concerned about um, because by definition, Medicaid is a low-income program. And when a low-income program is your only payer of long-term care, if you want long-term care, you have to impoverish yourself. And that's what we require in this country. And I think that's a terrible, terrible national policy. There aren't a whole lot of very good solutions or easy solutions. 
but the one that we have now is, is simply not going to work, and we, we definitely need a lot more attention paid to that. So the second piece I would just sort of um, point out about, uh, about Medicaid is, you know, it is an extremely large and extremely complicated program. We're, it's bigger than Medicare in terms of the number of people covered. That's going to continue to uh, increase. We're spending half a trillion dollars a year. Um, and I think we're all, we're very proud of some of the things that are happening in terms of what Medicaid's doing to change the delivery system, change the payment incentives, improve the quality of care. But more things need to be done, and to get those done, we need be, to be more sophisticated around contracting. So much of what is going to happen is going to happen with external entities, a managed care plan, IT companies, what have you. And Medicaid has to be able to maximize how it utilizes them and can do so through better contracting because uh, you can't just trust them to do the right thing. Um, and to, but to do that, we need better data. Uh, we don't have great data at the state level, uh, whether it's encounter or claims or what have you. We don't know what we don't know in, in, in so many cases. Uh, we don't know what to require of the plans to do. Um, and at the end of the day, what we, ultimately what we need to do is we need to do a better job in this country of valuing the governance and administration of the program. You know, Medicaid is, in 50 states, a Fortune 500 company. And we need to be able to get to a point where we can start to approximate the investment that we put in leading Medicaid the way you might with a Fortune 500 company. Peggy. Um, I'm going to take a different spin. First of all, I want to thank the other people on this panel who are so smart and so knowledgeable. And thank you for being an excellent moderator. Um, I, I have a few things I want to say. I think, uh, you know, based on my 25 years as the head of NCQA, I think I have a few takeaways. Payment matters, really matters. Quality matters. It varies a lot, and we need to go after bad quality. I think we're going in the right direction. I think we need to give up on our market fantasies that the market will deliver us. I mean, I think that there are market forces that can be designed into the system, but I, I think too often we, it's kind of a lazy reaction to say, oh, the market will take care of it. And I think that's what we see with the specialty drug situation. And then I think, while I think we're proud of our work, we're all proud of our work, we're all in new territory, we need to constantly step back and ask ourselves, what's happening here that I didn't intend to happen? What did I miss? What's not working? We need to be humble, and we need to learn from our experience. And um, I think um, that's, that's a big order. Great. I think uh, every health economics textbook that's uh, produced heretofore needs a new chapter called Market Fantasies. So that's uh, <laughs> um, that's a, a new requirement. Leah. Well, I think we, what we need to do is uh, keep eyes on the prize, and the prize is the delivery of excellent care to the patient. And it is not how we finance that, although that's relevant, it is how we do it. And uh, I think uh, this conversation has been such a rich uh, experience for me to learn from all of you, uh, your thinking. But I do think that um, the Affordable Care Act has given us some opportunities. There are other options, there are other opportunities out there. Um, and 
transparency and candor is going to be critical uh, to get to a point where we know when we're headed in the right direction or when we're not, that we can give consumers and others the tools that they need to navigate this very bewildering set of changes that they will have to navigate. Um, and uh, the other thing I, I just want to highlight is that everything we talk about doing from a, a policy point of view has direct implications on that market. So employers who may not be government agencies, employers are heavily impacted by the Affordable Care Act, but they also impact it. And the assumption that employers will continue to pick up 20% of the bill of our national health spending um, is not one we should take for granted entirely. We need to figure out how to align better between employers and the public sector so that uh, so that we make the kinds of changes that will impact the delivery setting for all of us. Um, and I, I think uh, it's just really important to always keep the employers in mind. Often they get overlooked in these dis kinds of discussions. And I don't think that's a, that's a wise plan for any of us. Great. Austin. Oh, I agree with uh, many of the things that have been said. I'll just add that um, you know, there's clearly been a, done, a ton of change, um, but there's a lot more that we could do, a lot more reform to go. Um, the area that I, I see that we're just beginning to kind of talk about, and I'll say what I mean by that, is uh, cost effectiveness. We could do a lot more, have a lot more adult conversations about that without running and screaming about you know, rationing and, uh, and death panels and the like, but actually talk about that. Now, we kind of are starting to, and there's a lot of organizations that really are, um, and we've mentioned some of that today, but uh, when, when people use the term value and moving to value-based payment, that's, that's kind of what they're talking about. But, but, but still, there's a reason that word is used and not cost-effectiveness, because they're kind of you know, encapsulating it in a little bit of vague language, and they're kind of getting at it in indirect ways because we're so afraid of the concept and so afraid to discuss it. And I, I look forward to when we can you know, discuss it a little more openly and be more explicit about, you know, you know what? that's not valuable, that price has to come down or the benefit has to increase relative to this other thing or relative to other needs that we have as a society, education uh, and so forth. Um, so that's what I'm looking at for the big, next big frontier. Great. So on behalf of our panel in the American Journal of Managed Care, thank you for joining us for the Healthcare Reform Stakeholder Summit.